Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Fuzzy Labs, uh, open source MLOps experts, um, and Cathcart Technology, technology recruitment experts. Today on the show, I'm really excited to be talking to Massimo Belloni, the data science manager at Bumble. Welcome to the show, Massimo. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. I feel like we've been talking about it for ages, so it's amazing to it, get it booked yeah, in. Probably six, six months ago, seven months ago, when we started to, to discuss about this podcast presence, yes. And it's almost entirely my fault, because every time we got there, <laughs> we had to move it. But no, so we always kick off the show with a kind of relatively quick walk through people's backgrounds, um, starting at education, or if you didn't have an education background, then we talk about that. Um, but you did a, a bachelor's and a master's in computer science and engineering yep. in Milan, right? Yes, uh, Politecnico di Milano. I'm born and raised in Milan, and I, I mean, I don't think that anyone can argue that the Politecnico di Milano is the best engineering school in Italy, and a lot of people from Italy, but now, um, nowadays, considering that they're doing the master in English also all over Europe and all over the world are going there, uh, I was lucky enough that I was already from Milan, so it was, um, was an easy choice. Uh, did bachelor, both, both bachelor and master uh, in computer science and engineering, but mainly because and should be also um, till today. We don't have any data science master or machine learning master in Italy, uh, but my master for looking at the courses and exams that I took in, at the end of the day was indeed a data science master or a machine learning master, give whatever fancy name you wish. <laughs> yeah, so I was gonna say that actually, the, the masters seem very focused on data science. So I, I assume that was by design from you. So that's why you had to do it that yep. way, right? So there's not Because a... the bachelor is kind of blocked in a sense that what we what they usually say in um, in Polytechnico, since a lot of people um, enroll to computer engineering and then they complain that there isn't enough computer science, they say that I mean in Italian you are a computer engineer, but in the engineering world comes before. So before being a computer, you are an engineer, right? So the bachelor is quite locked in when it comes to the uh, classes that you make. And to be completely yeah. honest, when it comes to pure computer science skills, after the bachelor. I knew pretty much as much as I knew before starting, while in the master you have a lot of freedom to actually pick uh, courses that actually uh, suit your interests. Uh, so there were a lot of people that were taking more of a major in machine learning, artificial intelligence, people that were more into distributed systems, people that were more in management. Uh, so it's really for how the Italian university, the Italian engineering path is, is in the master that you actually specialized in uh, one aspect or the other and indeed I did a lot of stuff around computer science, uh, about um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it's, yeah, it's, it's fair enough, actually. And Milan must have been a cool place to grow up, right? Like, that must have been pretty cool to, to be born and raised in a, in a city like that. Yeah, I mean, it's the more the more I live abroad, because it's almost five years and I'm living abroad, the more I'm grateful to be an Italian. Because as Italian people, we tend to underestimate a lot what Italy is uh, for people abroad. And when you start to actually interact with a lot of foreigners, you are really grateful to be Italian and to be born and raised in Milan. I mean, I don't want to start a war here, but I think that there are just two big cities in Italy or the others are villages. And one is Milan and the other is Rome. I think that Milan is the most Italian city out of all the European cities because, I mean, and probably Rome is very Italian and less European. I mean, it's a, Milan is an European capital, despite yeah. it's not a capital at all, uh, people from Rome would argue. Uh, but yes, it's, it's the only city in Italy where I would see myself living whenever or if I will eventually uh, go back to Italy. 
Yeah, no, that's but fair. Not, I, yet. I, not yet. I had exactly the same experience of Edinburgh. So when I left her um, a year or so and was around Australia and New Zealand, like it made me realize how much I actually appreciated like the home. Um, so yeah, I totally understand what you mean. But yeah, I don't want to start a war before any other Italians listening. That there's, <laughs> only, that there's only two cities. Uh, but no, that's cool. But after your studies, was the plan after your master's to get into a data scientist, machine learning job? I know, I, and we're going to get onto this, but you moved to the Netherlands. So was the plan to leave Italy? Let's say that, yes. I mean, the, the reason why I picked a data science job and the reason why I decided to pick it abroad, it's pretty much the same decision. But let's say that while I was studying, uh, studying engineering, I never done an Erasmus. So I never studied abroad because I was too busy studying and I didn't want to commit six months of my life or to possibly post six months of my university career to try to live abroad. So after graduating, I said, you know what, let's try to have an experience abroad working wise. Now it's improving, but back then it was complicated to have a very decent and solid data science job in Milan. In a sense that the title, yes, but then doing something really connected to machine learning that is not just a data analytics consultancy was very complicated. Uh, so since I really wanted to get to a data scientist title as uh, soon as possible, the easiest choice and probably strategically speaking and looking back was the right decision was just to try to get the title abroad. Why the Netherlands? Why Rotterdam? To be honest, I would love to say that there was a, a very um, well ironed out master plan, but it was quite random. Uh, I said either UK or the Netherlands. Why the Netherlands? Because I was in Amsterdam for a lot of times in the past. I really like the city, I like the vibe. Why not? Um, and also working wise, which are the European uh, countries that have a more developed tech scene? Uh, the Netherlands, uh, UK, because back in the days was pre-Brexit, um, and Germany. One of my best friends actually moved to Berlin and I said, no, you know what? I want to try something else. So I was, okay, let's apply around. I wanted to have an internship in a company that was vibrant, that was still startup enough that it could actually have an impact. And applying on LinkedIn, I ended up uh, finding a Dutch startup. Was probably looking back the luckiest uh, decision of my uh, entire career, right? Because I mean, wasn't planned out. Uh, it's not that I was picking a company based on any kind of macro uh, KPI. It was random and indeed was the perfect company for what I needed, was the perfect city for what I needed. And when I look back at that decision, I, I'm like, okay, I mean, I was probably brave and bold to leave my country and try something new, but I was also extremely lucky to find a company that was actually allowing me to grow as a person, mainly, uh, and also as a, as a professional. It's super interesting though, because you obviously, I mean, you said you were lucky, but you obviously made a conscious decision that you wanted to work in a vibrant tech scene. Yeah. You wanted to work for a startup so you could actually add, or start up enough that you could add value, have an impact and probably progress your career quicker, right? Because it can often be easy and obviously everyone's different, so I don't want to tar everyone the same brush, but it can often be tempting as a graduate, especially in the market nowadays, that you go for the big graduate scheme, big four, like hedge fund, like whatever, and you're a data scientist or a software developer and you straight away you get paid 60, 70,000 pounds, euros. It's hard to make an impact at those companies. So you made that conscious decision that the company had to be small enough and vibrant enough that you could really like, you could get involved. Yep. 
let's say that I don't know how much I have to be honest and uh, oversell myself in a sense that is also true that back then is not that I was swimming in offers uh, from big companies in a sense that um, as well um, as I was saying Politecnico di Milano is a big university in Italy so I was really well set when it comes to the Italian uh, tech market I get plenty of offers from consultancy companies in Milan so I could have just made the decision of okay I want to stay here uh, just to give you a little bit more context when I was still in high school, so like a year ago, I was already studying computer science and programming and I was doing a couple of internships. Uh, one of these was in a, one of the, I don't know if it's big four, I'm not an expert on the topic, but one of the big four-ish kind of consultancy company. And let's say that it wasn't, I don't think that it was a good use of my skills and it wasn't a, it wasn't a job that I would have uh, see myself doing. So yeah. I was very biased in a sense that now growing up and getting more mature, I might consider not now a kind of consultancy uh, job, but after graduating, the only promise that I said to myself was at the moment, no big uh, consultancy companies, no big tech, but big tech, I don't know. I mean, the truth is that when you are uh, right out of university, either you come from Stanford, Ax uh, Oxford, Harvard, or it's complicated to get into big tech, uh, yeah. but no uh, big consultancy companies. So yes, I mean, there was some rational decision making involved, but still, out of 10 star startups that you can pick, how many are actually the good one that survives to crisis that is actually giving you a nice environment? Then to be fair, it wasn't really a crazy startup, it was 100 people back then, and it's still there. I mean, we can, we can also say the name was Housing Anywhere in Rotterdam. It's still yeah. there, it's still thriving at the best of my knowledge. Uh, but yes, I mean, out of probably 10 companies that they could have picked at random in the Netherlands, I don't know how many are left, also considering the, the big COVID uh, that happened, etc. So, I mean, yes, yeah. there was no, some that, rationality involved, but also I was lucky. No, that makes sense. And how was it? I mean, obviously, you said you spent time in Amsterdam, so it might make it easier. But how was it moving from Milan, one of like the most thriving, busy cities in the world, to, with all due respect, Rotterdam, which is a relatively small but interesting yeah. place to live? Yes, oh, actually you are touching a, a huge uh, life point because now I'm living in London that is yeah. on the complete opposite in a sense that if you say, I mean, to me, Rotterdam and Milan are much, much similar than London. That is a huge metropolis that is unsustainable uh, size-wise. And imagine that when I was living in Rotterdam, I was saying, no, you know what? I don't want to move to Amsterdam. It's too crowded, it's too busy. And look at me now. <laughs> but no, yes, I mean, I really coming from a city like Milan that for Italian standards is huge, but now I'm a different person because when I go back to Milan now, it's a tiny town, I can still walk around. Like worst case scenario, if you are out and I don't know, the metro is closed, you can get a, a bike or you can just walk around in Milan. It's still walkable to some extent. Rotterdam is this on steroids. Like wherever you go, you can take a bike and go wherever you want. There are no, you don't have to check the tube. You don't have to make plans to meet people. Let's meet there in 10 minutes. And I think that really on a personal level, that is not just working related. Living in Rotterdam really changed me um, on a personal level because was, you know, you're out of university, you start living alone, you start making your own money, you're becoming an adult, right? And doing this in a city where everything is possible and everything is reachable was, a, was a, a great opportunity in a sense that now I'm also attacking London, jokes aside, with much more maturity and I'm also older, so my requirements changed. But probably no, yes. I mean, that's also the reason why the most vibrant students town are also smaller, uh, also in the Netherlands, like Rotterdam. 
is a very vibrant student town thanks to the Rotterdam School of Management. But yeah, I mean, the, I felt the heat moving from Milan to Rotterdam, but it's not as bad as Rotterdam to London. Because size-wise, Rotterdam, if I'm not mistaken, is around 1,800,000. Uh, uh, Milan is somewhere above 1 million. So, I mean, the truth is that Rotterdam is less of a village than uh, people that never been to Rotterdam would say. But still, yeah. it's a tiny town. And actually, to wrap up the Rotterdam topic, is for how much it feel, um, you are living in a tiny town and in a small town, it never feels like a village. Yeah. It's like a metropoly, but at scale. Yeah, no, that makes Scaling sense. Down. So, and I don't want to get off topic here and talk about geography rather than data science. But did you just say Milan's only one million people? Should be. I have to double check. For example, I just might be more. Milan one million, was one million and three, one million and three hundred thousand. The thing wow. about Milan, just to wrap up the geography problem, the main difference <laughs> between Milan and Rome is that Milan, the city of Milan, is fairly small. And then we have a whole ecosystem of satellite cities where I was uh, born and raised. I was born and raised in one of these satellite cities that officially speaking, they have a different major uh, and they are a different uh, city. Despite we are all from Milan to some extent, we have the metro, we can get there. And um, I can say, I mean, I was born in Milan and then raised there. Rome, uh, on the contrary, is a huge mass that is just the city of Rome. Yeah. And this leads to a lot of problems also when it comes to administration. Why Milan is so efficient? Also because it's very small to administer. While Rome is this huge, huge town that has a lot of inhabitants. Uh, Rome is more similar to London, despite the, the districts in London are, they have their tiny councils, etc. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Anyway, let's get back to data science. People don't tune <laughs> but that's really interesting. Yeah, you, you mentioned housing anywhere, which was tech startup focused on making renting easier, right? Yep. Yeah, so you worked there as a data scientist for a couple of years. What were you kind of working on initially? Like, what was the data problem that you were solving? Uh, I think that the, the, my career progression at Housing Anywhere, that actually to me it's crazy to think that they were just two years. Uh, when I think about them, they really, really look way more than two. Let's say that I was the first proper data scientist hired in the company. Uh, they had quite of a solid, let's say, data culture and analytics team in a sense that being fairly new as a company, they were data uh, at core from the beginning. So everything was data-driven, decisions were data-driven, but there wasn't a lot of expertise in dealing with automatic decision-making. Uh, it's where I would draw the line personally between data analytics and data science. When you do data analytics, you are supporting humans in making decisions. When you are doing data science, you are more creating capabilities for automatic decision-making, right? I was the first data scientist hired and I was looking and I was my own product manager to some extent. So I was going around the company trying to spot areas where automatic decision making would have benefited the company. And the first area, and again, was luck in a sense that they did my due diligence, but actually picking a successful data science project is also a matter of how lucky you are. There is a lot of uncertainties involved. I implemented this uh, fr- automatic fraud detection uh, model. Uh, was an housing market, right? So you can expect that, especially in markets that are very hot when it comes to housing, when, when it comes to cheap housing, because the initial goal of the company was providing accommodation to students. Um, you can imagine that there are a lot of scammers. Yeah. Um, so the, the process back then was quite rusty. There was a lot of manual uh, manual intervention, also because the scale was fairly limited back then and historically, uh, while the scale was growing up quite significantly. I developed this model that was able to detect a listing at the moment that is uploaded 
is actually a scam or not and was actually speeding up the, uh, the operations, uh, efficiency, etc., etc. You deploy the first model and it's where the job of the data scientist changes completely because you realize that in order to possibly either maintain or monitor the model or even being faster in deploying the second iterations or new models, you really need to invest heavily on data engineering. So after the first five months in Housing Anywhere, I practically stopped becoming, uh, being a data scientist. We hire later on people that were doing data science. And if I have to be completely honest, now I'm not have to sell myself as a data scientist anymore. For one year and a half, I was practically a data engineer. I yeah. was putting together data pipeline, I was uh, taking care of the data warehouse, I was um, evangelizing about using Airflow, democratizing data quality, et cetera, et cetera. But in parallel, uh, luckily the team was growing, the company was growing, and we were actually creating a data engineering uh, function with two data scientists, uh, another data engineer, and our team that I was leading in the end became a data engineering team that had a mixed focus on data science. And we did a lot of interesting modeling, a model to predict fair rental price for a property given its features, an amazing model that looking back at what we did was actually a masterpiece, a computer vision model that looking at the quality of the images um, of a listing were reshuffling the, um, the listing page in order to uh, put on top good quality or good looking listings. Um, but I mean, looking back, Housing Anywhere was very healthy when it comes to experimentation. We had an A-B test framework. We actually were able to prove that there was an uplift. I don't remember the metric because it's three years ago, four years ago, but there was an uplift in click rate and everything thanks to data science together with the data engineers moving together in a team with this mixed focus. And I left pretty much when we got to the stage of maturity that we were okay. We are succeeding. What's the vision? How to move forward? How can we actually scale even more aggressively? How can we restructure this team? That's really interesting. I love that you said it was a masterpiece too. That's class. <laughs> but after three years, I can say it. And it wasn't even my model. It was another guy that was doing it. Uh, oh, was it my team? Um, uh, but looking back, looking at how complicated it is nowadays to do data science and machine learning in production, we actually managed to have deep learning uh, models at scale in a product, in a user-facing feature with a um, full growth mindset of experimentation, A-B testing is a huge success story. Yeah, no, 100%. And it's interesting as well, because obviously with where I work now, but we've talked about it on LinkedIn as well, that MLOps is now a fairly standardized, agreed upon term for helping get models into production and making um, machine learning more, uh, well, providing value to the the end business, right? Like MLOps is a is a key part of that. It seems like you you kind of noticed that at Housing Anywhere, and, and obviously you ended up picking up some of the data engineering. And you said about MLflow, MLOps probably wasn't as accepted as a term. But is it fair to say that you kind of got those wheels in motion motion at Housing Anywhere? Looking back now. Yes, let's say that I have quite a confrontational opinions on MLOps per se, in a sense that the way in which you uh, deploy stuff at scale is not MLOps. There, is, there are 20 years of engineering literature on how to do things properly. 
yeah. right? What we did at Housing Gallery, where now, of course, I mean, I'm creating the storytelling, but there was a lot of help behind the scenes from our uh, backend engineers that were, I mean, despite we were writing in Python and our backend was in Go and maybe that they didn't know Go, they were actually mentoring me quite a lot on best practices on how to write containerized application. Whenever you have to deploy things on Kubernetes, because at the end our infrastructure was in Kubernetes, I was asking help for the DevOps people. These guys didn't have any machine learning background that is not, you're an engineer, you read around, you know pretty much what you're talking about. So, I mean, I can say that back in the days that I was in Gen, we did MLOps. Yes, we did it. At Bumble, we are doing it in a completely different scale, but also because we are a bigger team, so we have to more bring capabilities to a wider team. Uh, but we were just applying best practices that were inherited from backend engineers with 15 years of experience, DevOps people that were super strong in Kubernetes and containerized application, concepts like CI CD or passing um, parameters as environment variables are best practices that doesn't, don't come from MLOps. They come from engineering literature and you just apply them. And of course, as a MLOx pr uh, practitioner or as an engineer, as a ML engineer is a term that I like more because it's more of a, a person that has fit in two different shoes at the same time. Yeah. Um, you have to just inherit as much as you can from, you don't have to reinvent the, the, the wheel. You can just inherit as many best practices as you can from um, practitioners in the field for more time than you are and just translate them or apply them to a domain that is slightly different but also whenever we have to monitor a machine learning model in production, 90% of the best practices are exactly the same that you would apply for uh, a microservice architecture that is, I don't know, returning the number of users in, a, um, in an area uh, written in PHP. Yeah, no, and we have so many similar conversations now with different clients. And when we do our like upfront kind of discovery sessions, we really like getting someone from engineering at the table as well because they're often doing quite a lot of this stuff but in a bigger team or in a more siloed team they don't always talk to the data scientists like what you guys were doing so like some of it is just bringing people together as well yeah. um, and obviously there's different tools and methodologies and it's not always you can just copy what engineering are doing but in terms of the methodology and the literature yeah you're right I mean a lot yeah, when of it comes stuff to best practices, then you have to translate things in a sense yeah. that also not needing someone, I mean, at housing anywhere scale, we were fairly small as a team. At the, yeah. at the best, when I left, we were like four or five people concerned on the topic. Now at Bumble, we are, I have to check Slack, but working as data scientists, 20. So you see that also when you have, uh, as a um, manager or leading data science, I really like to work with data scientists with an engineering background because we speak the same language, right? But data science nowadays means everything, um, so therefore doesn't mean, enough, uh, doesn't mean anything. So uh, there are people that really come from different backgrounds and you see that if a machine learning engineer or a data scientist with a solid engineering background doesn't really need a lot of help to, to deploy stuff, Whenever you have a data scientist that has more, I don't know, a statistical background, a mathematical background, an economics background, they need more support from an MLOps infrastructure that is um, given as a service or as a tool. So yeah. bigger teams and more complicated settings bring different challenges, but still, as a machine learning engineer, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. This is, yeah. the, this is the point. Yeah, that's the big thing. And it's actually one of the main reasons that uh, the two founders of Fuzzy Labs went into the consultancy of MLOps was because there's enough tools out there. We didn't need to build another tool. Um, we wanted to 
implement best practice in organizations that didn't have people like you and your colleagues at Bumble. They don't have they don't have those people. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's not reinventing the wheel by any stretch. So, like you said, by the time you left Housing Anywhere, it was on to that next step. Uh, where were they going to go? But obviously that resulted in a change for you in November, November 2020, 20, I think it said, yeah. Yes, almost two years, almost two years. So it was kind of, it was COVID time, or I mean, not right at the after start the of fir- COVID. After the yeah. first wave, when, yeah. when I started to interview for Bumble, I thought that it was over, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and then the whole process is, I started the process, and then at the end of the process, they told me, okay, I mean, since things are getting worse if you want to stay in the Netherlands while working for Bumble for a while you can mm. and I ended up staying in the Netherlands for until August because I'm fairly new to London it's not even one year oh nice so yeah uh, so because during Covid I stayed in I stayed in Rotterdam well yeah it's pretty cool that you could do that as well we touch on that so yeah I was going to say you moved to London in November 2020 but that's not what happened so that's fine <laughs> how did the move to Bumble come about like what attracted you to Bumble um, as your next step yes I mean there are of course, as in every job change, there are personal reasons and also war-related reasons, right? Um, I told you pretty much quite extensively my uh, progression that was in anywhere. I didn't want to grow more as a uh, manager of managers in the data space without actually having the chance to see other areas or other kind of companies. Uh, because when you grow fast in a startup, you always risk to become very big in a, a smaller fishbowl. Yeah. I don't know if you know what I mean, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I want, okay, I, I'm fine with that, but I want to try something different before possibly going back to a setting like that one, because I mean, I like working in smaller companies and having a personal relationship with people. Uh, but still, I was starting to, to look around. They really wanted to try to use, uh, to work in a product for a product that people use. Um, and Bumble, I mean, I don't know who is familiar with Bumble, dating and connection up. We have Bumble, we have Badoo, we have Fruits recently. I really wanted to try to make the step towards a company, uh, later became public, but a, a company that is used by millions of users in order to also deal with the scale and the challenges, uh, because at the end, more data, the paradigm stays pretty much the same, right? But having more data brings more challenges and also more possibilities from a data science perspective. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of uh, text, uh, images, like when it comes to data sources at Bumble, we have everything that a uh, junior data scientist can, uh, can wish to have. And then, I mean, was a great company, a great product. Um, I was, I really like to work uh, for a company with a strong mission. I really like the interviewing process. I really like the people I spoke to. I really like the mission, the vision that the, that the top management that was interviewing me uh, gave me um, and was a perfect match. Uh, and I decided, okay, I mean, let's try this. I took a step back because I went back to an individual contribution role for a while. And then after one year, uh, I was actually appointed to back to, to people management in data with a way different self-awareness now, because when it happens a couple of times, you also see different aspects and you're like, okay, I mean, it might also be that this is the job that I do uh, the best, so why not keep doing it until I enjoy it? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And we've touched on it already in terms of scale, but data in the kind of online dating world must be, well, it must be pretty interesting and massive amounts of data. What, um, what are the kind of is there was there any different challenges outside of the scale like you mentioned um and i think i've seen a couple of your talks that you've done around nlp yep so that kind of the challenge of text must be quite interesting yep uh, let's say that um 
I don't have, I mean, the team is big, I don't have full visibility on all the aspects data-wise. Let's say that internally we have three big challenges, three big teams in data science that are trying to solve different challenges. Um, we have the, uh, the matchmaking people recommendation team that is indeed trying to, to leverage our data to provide to our user the best matchmaking experience uh, possible. We have the team that I'm leading now, that we are six people for the integrity and safety space. Um, you can imagine that, I mean, there are bad actors on dating apps is not a, is not a news and we are trying to prevent um, either uh, these, act these bad actors to actually arm anyone or possibly to not even show to recipient bad content or uh, optimizing the way in which we deal with moderation cues because we have a lot of reports and stuff, so the integrity and safety team, and then we have the third branch that is business optimization, uh, forecasting, uh, LTV of our users, everything related to, to this aspect of the of the data science space. Um, yeah. Then yes, I mean, in terms to the integrity and safety team, we have different areas. We have text moderation to help out our queue optimization when it comes to, to text or messages. Um, images, we are very, very strong on images, as you can imagine. We also uh, release publicly our private detector, we've wrote a lot about the private detector. There is a, there is a tool in our products that actually bl uh, blurs images that contains loot content because we are, as a company, we have a strong mission uh, to actually make the internet a better place when it comes to, uh, to unsol unsolicited uh, lewd images. And then we have plenty of optimization mechanisms behind the scenes because our load um, brings a lot of challenges when it comes to reporting, for example. Um, of course, the bad actors are luckily a strong minority on yeah. our products, but in our scale, this generates, possibly generates a lot of reports. So we have to deal internally with a lot of automation and machine learning to decide how we want to prioritize reporting. Um, so you see that for, from a data scientist perspective, we have text, we have uh, images, we have tabular data, pretty much everything. Yeah, like you said, a, a junior data scientist's uh, fairground. When they set up Bumble, was data science, machine learning always at the at the core or did they did they know when they set it up because i know i think the founder came from a previous data app right so did they know that that was going to be a really important part of the business um yes in a sense that uh bumble originally i mean when when we talk about bumble we talk about bumble and badoo badoo yeah. is practically the first dating app for how we know them today Okay. Uh, and Badoo is a 15, 16 years old company. We still have internally people that used to work in Badoo for that amount of time. Oh, wow. Um, and we have always been historically for the, for the London market, very, very strong when it comes to engineering culture. And we are proud and we always been and we still are proud to say that our engineers in the Badoo side of the, of the company are probably the strongest in, the, in London. Uh, and so they they've always been uh, pioneers in actually leveraging machine learning and deep learning when still was in the paper phase. We mm. always had a lot of appetite for new things. So we have, I mean, I don't want to put me on the record when it comes to dates, but we use deep learning or a complicated machine learning in Badoo even before Bumble came in. So when actually we created Bumble and Whitney um, created Bumble, uh, we started to leverage a lot of um, advanced analytics from day zero. Uh, yeah. And also on the side, because I mean, data is not just data science. You also have to have a strong data analytics backbone. And I could say that, yeah, from days, I mean, from the day that I came, that is fairly, is fairly new because it's not even two years. But my, my experience with Bumble is being a, a data-driven company in the, in the backbone. 
Yeah. We don't take any decision that is not data-driven. Uh, and even product managers are very data-driven. Everyone uses data to um, either for manual decision-making and support human decision-making, but also we have a lot of automatic decision-making modeling, both in user-facing features, but also in the way we optimize the way in which internal people work. Because at our scale, being efficient in internal operations is also, is also key to success. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and yeah, it, it probably looking at Bumble and Badu from the outside, you can see the, the kind of caliber of people that work there. So yeah, it's no surprise that there's that kind of backbone. Um, and we touched on MLOps already and the fact that Housing Anywhere, you and the team were involved in that world, but the scale of it is just totally different at Bumble. So like, where does that fit into the wider data science environment at Bumble? But also kind of generally speaking, you said you've got um, obviously, you've got your opinions on MLOps, but like where other data science teams outside of Bumble, where MLOps can help, do you think? I think that MLOps can help in democratizing access to complicated topics like resource provisioning and deployment at scale. In a sense that as a machine learning engineer, like whatever my title now or my role, I will always be an engineer. As an engineer, to me, having, um, I mean, just because we are talking about open source tools, having a Kubeflow um, deployment doesn't really speed up myself that much. In a sense that I can know, I know how to allocate resources and train on GPUs. I know how to design a service for deploying at scale. I know how to deploy on Kubernetes using raw manifest. As an engineer, it doesn't help me much. Yeah. The thing, as I was mentioning, is when, when your team scales and you actually need people with different verticals and different expertise, you cannot expect that everyone is an engineer that is able to uh, allocate resources by themselves or deploy models using raw Kubernetes manifest or writing the service by themselves, is where MLOps helps. MLOps is really more, uh, has to be seen more as a multiplier of the skills of your team, because you have to allow your team with different level of expertise to actually have an easy access and abstract the complexity of having access to resources or to deploy models at scale. Yeah. And as a machine learning engineer at a scale like Bumble, it's not that you really, you, whenever five different data scientists reach out to you for, can you deploy this service? Can you deploy this service? You also have to uh, make your life better. So you have to come up with solutions like Kubeflow that doesn't uh, actually have to make you write the service every time and write the Kubernetes manifest. So let's say that Kubeflow helps more the MLOps uh, or the machine learning engineer practitioner than the data scientist. Because for them is also a matter of, can you do this for me? Yes, but why not? You do it by yourself because I'm giving you the tools to be more uh, powerful uh, and more accountable and having more ownership over the end-to-end -end cycle. Yeah. Um, in my dream data scientist, a data scientist should be able to own the cycle from the beginning to the end, right? So why not giving them tools that machine learning engineers puts together or write or just deploy for actually allowing them to own the end-to-end -end without having to be unicorn or super seasoned backend engineers? Yeah. No, that makes sense. And is there, I, I don't know what it, it looks like at Bumble, but I know some of the conversations we have is around like letting data scientists collaborate, work on the same model together, being able yep. to being able to replicate anywhere rather than just on their machine and their notebook. Like, like you said, at scale, at a small scale, that's okay because there's one or two data scientists, so... It's annoying, it's annoying also at small scale, in a sense that being able, I think that being able to replicate your experiments is 
one of the very, very few uh, keys of success in data science. Uh, experiment replicability. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, despite Kubiflow by itself doesn't solve the issue, we also have in our MLOps uh, ecosystem tools that indeed do experiment tracking and do experiment tracking in a replicable fashion. Because, I mean, what does it mean replicability on a technical level? Either you containerize everything, and so you have a Docker file. As a personal preference, works for me, but I'm an engineer. Not all the data scientists I work with are confident in actually dockerizing everything and containerizing the experiments. So yeah. using Conda, using uh, PIP requirements, but in a way that is indeed easy to access for data scientists and enforced by design. So possibly having a project management tool that actually enforces experiments to be replicable. Just because whenever you track an experiment, it automatically loads the environment or creates a Docker file for you. Uh, this is MLOps, it's a, su a suite of tools that actually empowers and facilitates best practices for data scientists. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And we, we touched on it actually already, but the, the Bumble data team and MLOps environment is quite heavily focused on open source tools, right? Was that by design? Yep. Was is, is that on purpose? Like, did somebody, yes. yeah? Yep. And why is that? It's a, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a personal decision in the sense that at the moment we are five machine learning engineers and we are quite uh, open in giving, giving each other feedbacks and discussing every technical decision. Um, but yes, why not? In a sense that I would say that the MLOps environment now is quite mature. There is a lot of good stuff around. Yeah. And as yeah. an engineer, I don't like, as every engineer, I tend to be lazy, let's say, and I call myself into this, into this set as well. Why reinventing the wheel when there is a vibrant community of engineers that are on average better than I will ever be that are maintaining and improving a product. Why writing uh, an orchestrator tool when there is Kubernetes it is the de facto standard? Why having to write a suite of tools for deploying machine learning models in production as scale on Kubernetes when there is Kubiflow? So it's mainly the decision of open source tools is we have a challenge. Has anyone tried to solve this challenge at scale and is making the solution available? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, let's go for open source. That's my approach to problems. If the answer is no and happened in the past and it's gonna keep happening for a company like Bumble that has a lot of complicated challenges, whenever the answer is no, we have the skills, the expertise to actually write things or build things ourselves. Interestingly, you never, out of those two options, you didn't mention, so there are some of these around, MLOps proprietary platforms. So like, that's as an engineer, is that just not in your thinking to have like an all-encompassing managed like platform but because i think that as a team we are already at the level of maturity and skills were and complexity of challenges where a one fit for all solution wouldn't work for us yeah, uh, yeah. we still want i mean in our ecosystem we still rely on a raw kubernetes cluster because we want to be able to deploy things ourselves if something happens or there is a specific need and then we have kubiflow on top but Kubiflow alone doesn't um, solve all the challenges we have at our scale for our team. So we prefer to follow this open source plus modular approach where every, um, also Airflow, uh, we have a couple of needs for which we need Airflow. Why Airflow and not Kubiflow pipeline? Because Kubiflow pipeline is a great, great tool but has shortcomings or problems. So we follow this modular approach that is very custom and, and tailored on our needs. Yeah, um, yeah. Having a one fit for all I'm not against in general, but for the scale we are now, it might might create more problems than the one they solve. Yeah. No, I mean, we, hey, we're open source all the way. It was just uh, interesting. And we had a conversation with someone recently that 
has actually done a huge amount of very, very good engineering and we're maybe considering getting rid of all of that for a platform. And we said, like, you don't have to pay us, that's fine, but don't get rid of all that really good stuff. Like, just to plug something in because it's easier. Like, you've already done a huge amount of, like, the the, the customization, the, the difficult bit. Um, so, yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and, yeah, totally agree with what you said. The last thing on work um, and data, you have now done a couple of people management roles, like you said, and you've worked in that kind of, relatively speaking, smaller scale up and now at, at Bumble, which is a different scale entirely. Um, but you've obviously grown the team and hired some good people. Is there anything you've learned from, I suppose, your time in the Netherlands versus um, to what you might have learned now about growing and kind of nurturing a really high quality machine learning team? On this topic, usual disclaimer, personal opinion, not um, uh, any is uh, in any way related to, to Bumble as a company. I think that depends on the scale in a sense that if you are starting a data science team from scratch and we go back to the, I mean, it's not a surprise, it's pretty much repeating what I was saying during the podcast. Yeah. Having yeah. engineering skills is important because you have to be able to own the process end to end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then on top of this, depends on the maturity and how much you trust a couple of key leaders in the organization. But in the data science space, there is more than in any other space, there is a lot of raw talent in universities. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a sense that from a purely data science standpoint, I think that if you take a freshman out of university or college, they have more data science knowledge than I have now. Because I was studying data science stuff five years ago, of course, and keeping myself updated, I read papers, but I'm busy during the day. Like my day to day is complex. I don't have uh, the privilege to um, go full day in data science, new advancements. Yeah, so yeah. there is a huge opportunity if you trust your leadership, because seniority in data science is mainly a matter of traversing the complexity and being able to understand when to push and when to break. Uh, other topic, we can I have another podcast about this. But yes, hiring people with a solid engineering background helps and speeds up stuff, at least at the beginning. And um, not to underestimate it to me and tells me you have this budget uh, for creating a data science team composed by five people, six people. I would probably hire just one senior for a very specific niche or area where I don't feel myself confident enough yeah. on a very technical standpoint. For the rest, I would create an army of talented juniors because I trust my leadership and the leadership of the company to actually give them an environment where they can thrive. I can bring the experience. So yeah, engineering and juniors, probably. A huge fan of that answer. I'd, I, I think people still sleep on, because people keep saying how hard it is to hire. There's a lot of very, very good talent coming out of university or self-taught, wherever it might be that just need a bit of an opportunity. And like you said, the right leadership has to be in place. And but. I'm not underestimating seniority in data science, right? Oh, of course I, not. I define myself as a senior person. I work with amazing senior people. I don't want to make names and surnames here, but in my team, there is an amazing senior machining engineer. But still, whenever you have to kickstart a team, we, people tend to say, and also they are more expensive. If I have a budget as a manager, I have to manage a budget as well. If I have a budget, like when you do fantasy football, I wouldn't hire three seniors. I prefer to have one senior, myself, and five juniors that have the still the appetite and the um, ambition to grow and do stuff. 
because also they're yeah. not, I mean, whenever you are in data science for a while, you're also more, more uh, less dreamy because you saw a lot of stuff and maybe that you had a couple of success already <laughs> and you see that it's not for how much you can do, it's not that you are changing the world with data science, right? While junior people still have this enthusiasm, that also helps me to keep myself motivated and helps other seniors to keep themselves motivated. 100%. Yeah, you can't have uh, Salah, De Bruyne and Harry Kane in the same fantasy football team. You're going to run out of cash. I can't believe we talked about fantasy football picks on the podcast. That's a first. Right, that's the work stuff done. So if anyone's expecting any more data content, they can stop listening. Um, there was one more thing on your LinkedIn that I liked, and it was the fact that you call yourself a burger and kebab evangelist. It's more of a, I mean, I have also a fun story about this, but this is something that I lost more during the, during the years because the more, I get, uh, the more I get old, the less I eat. But when I was 16, 16 to university years, I was crazy with burgers and kebabs in a sense that where whatever city I was doing tourism out of food with a friend. We were going to cities like we went to Japan. First thing when we land, best burger in Tokyo. And we were going to different places just to try out different burgers. Same for London, Berlin, uh, Milan, of course, um, Budapest, like in every European capital, I used to know which was the best burger place. Also Latvia, Helsinki crazy stuff and when it comes to uh, kebabs um, there is this story that is not an urban legend happened for real i was with this friend in university <laughs> milan it was 4 p.m on a i don't know lazy tuesday it was probably february we were like you know what we feel like having a kebab we were already been to berlin a couple of times together now we live in berlin um, we don't know what to do tonight we booked a flight from for berlin we went to berlin we got a kebab and we took the first flight back in the morning so we actually went from Milan to Berlin to have a kebab. Now the guy lives in Berlin and it's actually a while because for COVID and stuff, he's a while that I'm not going to Berlin, but I will go somewhere soon just for a kebab. This is the story. That's why Burgers and Kebabs Evangelist. There's another crazy That's... story about a kebab dish in the Netherlands that you can just find in Rotterdam. And then you ask me why I like Rotterdam. That is a metal foil, um, metal foil, like the one where you put lasagna in the, in the fridge, a yeah. layer of French fries, a layer of kebab meat, a layer of melted cheese, then garlic sauce, salad, and tomato. It's called Capsalon, and you can just find it in Rotterdam, allegedly, then of course it gets mainstream. And really, I think that if for any reason I, someone comes and tells me, you have to die tomorrow, but you have a last meal, I wouldn't say that it would be my first pick, but I would highly consider to have a Capsalon. And it's kebab-based. <laughs> I mean, and London must have some pretty good burgers. You must be happy with your choice of uh, living now. Yep, there is a lot of good stuff. I don't, I don't want to make, I'm not an Instagram influencer. I don't make a device for, <laughs> for burgers in London, but there is good stuff. The problem with London is that it's pricey wherever you go, whatever you do. So it's less, yeah. than, it's less the experience of like, when a good burger can also be decently priced, where of course you have to pay for quality. There are no secrets. If you want to increase the quality of the meat, you have to pay for it. Uh, but in London, good burgers can be very, very expensive and makes the experience oh, yeah, like, a little bit less fun than getting an amazing also burger makes you for judge five it, euros. And you probably judge it more harshly when it's 20 quid. Yeah, sometimes it's even more expensive <laughs> than 20. Well, like kebab in Berlin uh, back then was 3 euros and 50. Now there is inflation, so it might have increased. But the good thing about Berlin is that also street food is cheap as it's supposed to be. While in yeah. London or in the Netherlands, nothing is really cheap food-wise. But yeah. it's also a different culture. 
There we go. We'll leave it at that, but it was like that's a great note to end on. But thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate Thanks. it. It was um, very, very fun. It was very, very fun.